Man of Steel, Answers, Insight, Commentary, Episode 61, Growth, Open Mind, Part 2. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode is part two of a mini-series on how these DC films encourage us to cultivate an open mind. This episode is on avoiding the trap of self-certainty and embracing a growth mindset. This episode, we explore intellectual humility. This show dives deep into the Trinity Trilogy for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Hello, my beautiful friends. It seems a tad redundant to have an entire series on the benefits of an open mind if you're already a fan of a divisive franchise and listening to this show. And I have to credit your openness if you enjoy films on the fringes of consensus or listening to somebody as specific as me. So why should we have to look at opening our own minds when dealing with others being closed-minded? Well, first, it still will benefit you, so why not? And second, have you heard, to whom much is given, much will be required. Already having the gift of openness, you have to capitalize on it, examine yourself, broaden your perspective, and be a bridge to others. And this may involve shifting the focus away from fault-finding. Our culture creates an aversion to being wrong, as being right is, of course, rewarded. And the prevalence of social media turns us all into curators presenting a flawless and failure-free front. Don't get me wrong, numbers are numbers, math is math. Objectivity, metrics, and measurement are good and valuable things. But we tend to project them onto things that are heavily subjective or complex and nuanced things not well captured by metrics and measurement or simple presentation. Factfulness by Hans Rosling is a great book on that latter point, but on a more personal level, your score on a test in most cases is probably a fair assessment of your performance on that test. But we often take it a step beyond, where we take that performance and project it onto our self-worth and intrinsic value in absolute terms. Right and wrong on a test? becomes who you are. If you were raised with this kind of performance mindset, the following story from Swedish robotics enthusiast Simone Yetz may sound familiar. I'm not an engineer. I did not study engineering in school, but I was a super ambitious student growing up. In middle school and high school, I had straight A's and I graduated at the top of my year. On the flip side of that, I struggled with very severe performance anxiety. Here's an email I sent to my brother around that time. You won't understand how difficult it is for me to tell you, to confess this. I'm so freaking embarrassed. I don't want people to think that I'm stupid. Now I'm starting to cry too. Damn. And no, I did not accidentally burn our parents' house down. The thing I'm writing about in the email, and the thing I'm so upset about, is that I got a B on a math test. <laughs> Similarly, again and again, studies show the detrimental effects perfectionism has on our perception of ourselves 
and reality. We are doers, we are strugglers, we are fighters. We get up with all those amazingly powerful biases and prejudices that we have, convince ourselves that we're in the best tribe, that we are heroes, we're moral actors, and that the story of our lives is full of hope and promise. And that's what humans do. Above all else, we want to survive. So what on earth could it be that could cause a human self to actually want to make it destroy itself? I mean, that seemed to me like a really interesting question because it didn't make any sense. As bad as the suicide figures are, there would be hugely worse you can extrapolate if we didn't have around 10% of the population of the UK and the US on antidepressants at any one time. And I thought the answer is going to tell us something quite interesting about the self. Having suffered from suicidal ideation myself before, as a journalist, as I'm sure you know, when you've had a thing that's important to you personally, you tend to write lots about it. I'd written quite a few different separate stories about suicide. I'd met lots of people who survived suicide or who were partners, parents of people who had taken their own lives. And there was this thing that kept cropping up. And this is idea that this person had unusually high expectations for themselves. And the problem had been that those expectations had not been met again and again and again and again. And they felt stuck. Professor Roy Baumeister, a very brilliant um, you know, emeritus professor of psychology. And he found something similar, that it's people who have these kind of particularly high expectations for themselves and fail to meet them. And that led me to ask the question, well, why might this be happening so much at the moment? And you expand it out from suicide to other kind of self-attacking behaviours. And what they all have in common, one of the things that predicts them, one of the traits that predicts them is perfectionism. So when people are kind of perfectionistic, it predicts, it makes you more vulnerable, more likely to suffer from these problems. And so one of the definitions of perfectionism is when you're doing perfectionistic thinking, you are highly or more highly sensitive to signals of failure in your environment. So if you'll relatively easily be triggered into feeling like a failure, then that's going to cause you problems. It's going to lead to some of this sort of very negative perfectionistic thinking. And so that made me think, well, that's interesting because we have a cultural environment at the moment where it seems to me it's very easy to push people into feeling like they're failures. I mean, people are being made to feel like failures all the time. So listen to this. Am I a perfectionist? One person said, I want to get it perfect the first time, every time. My inner critic is constant. It is my judge, my warden. Or in the same vein, another person said, having built a magnificent dam of perfection, that is, I am perpetually plugging all the holes. It's tiring, depleting. It's about fear of chaos and anxiety that what is is not good enough and that I am not good enough. The research says there might be two different kinds of perfectionism. One kind of perfectionist agrees with statements like this. People will probably think less of me if I make a mistake. If I do not do well all the time, people won't respect me. If I fail partly, it is as bad as being a complete failure. But the other kind of perfectionist, they say, agrees with statements like this. I try to do my best in everything I do. I drive myself rigorously to achieve high standards. I have a strong need to strive for excellence. So this kind involves setting and striving toward very high standards. The first, that self-critical kind, has many negative consequences. Anxiety, depression, compromised relationships. But the second kind, striving for excellence, can have many positive consequences. Not only higher achievement, but greater life satisfaction. If we're not free to fail, if we're terrified of making a mistake, we must project perfection. This breeds perverse incentives to stick to the known, safe, and comfortable. 
to maintain an image, and that creates an inclination towards cowardice. Carol Dweck and her colleagues wanted to look into the impacts that praise had on children's development. So what they did is they took over 400 fifth grade students from all across the nation. They gave all the kids a really, really easy nonverbal IQ test. There were 10 questions and at the end of the test, they praised all the children in one of two ways. The first group was praised for their intelligence. So they said, wow, great job. You must be really smart at this. Now the second group was praised for their effort. So they said, wow, great job. You must must have worked really, really hard at this. Now this is a really subtle difference, but the impact it had is incredible. So after praising the kids, they gave them all an option for their next test. The first option was, hey, this next test is gonna be a little bit harder, but it's gonna be a great opportunity to learn and grow. Now the second option was, this next test will be similar to the first and you will surely do well on it. Now the interesting thing is, out of the group that was praised for their intelligence, 67% of them chose the easier option, while 92% of the kids who were praised for their effort chose the harder test. This is unbelievable to think about, how just the subtle difference in the way that they were praised had such an impact. Next, Dweck and her colleagues gave all the kids a really, really difficult test. It was one that they would surely fail, but they wanted to look at how the different kids attacked this challenge. Dweck noticed that the group that was praised for effort worked harder, longer, and actually enjoyed this test more than the group that was praised for their intelligence. This group got really frustrated with this test and had the tendency to give up early. After this artificially induced failure Around, all of the kids were given a third and final test. Now this test was the same level of difficulty as the first one, but check out the results. The group that was praised for their intelligence actually did worse on this test than the first one. Their average score actually dropped by 20%, while the group that was praised for their effort did significantly better, raising their average score by nearly 30%. This is a 50% difference in performance that was caused by a few subtle differences in the way that they were praised. We avoid trying the challenging or taking risks, which might make us look fallible or foolish. And my first inclination is to condemn that. But take a moment to think at how insane that is. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay not to know most things. It's actually impossible to know most things. And no one knows everything. We are all in the same boat. We all have gaps in our knowledge. So why do we all participate in a mass delusion of shamefully covering up and pretending everyone should and does know everything? Why indeed? If I take a step back and think about it, if we all do this, can't I take a beat to understand it for my own sake before I start pointing it out in others? That fear of failure taps into our deepest and darkest fears of the unknown and of negative feedback and anxiety. Most of us experience these common fears of the dark, of death, or of the future at some point in our lives, and according to psychologists, there could be a reason for that. Some researchers have argued that there might be one fundamental fear underlying all of these things, one you can trace all of your worries to, the fear of the unknown. Psychologists, maybe unsurprisingly, have been trying to understand fear for a long time, and evolutionarily speaking, the unknown makes a lot more sense as a universal, innate thing to be afraid. Of. If you've never encountered something before, you don't know how to deal with it, which means a little caution might be in order. The idea of this kind of broad, fundamental fear, rather than innate fears to specific stimuli, was proposed by a clinical psychologist in 1991. He suggested a few criteria for this base fear. It had to be something inherently unpleasant, it had to be distinct from other fundamental fears, and it had to explain other common things we're afraid of. He believed there were three of them. The fears of anxiety, 
of physical injury and of negative evaluation. Of course, a fear of the unknown isn't an easy thing to validate in the lab, but there are plenty of studies to suggest that we prefer familiarity and the sure thing, and that they can have a pretty wild effect on our behavior. Research shows that we're more likely to visit a travel destination that we've been to before, and we're more likely to attend a baseball game if we feel confident that our team will win. And although no one wants to be zapped, knowing when electrical shocks are coming even makes the experience less stressful and anxiety-provoking than not knowing. There's also clinical evidence to suggest that the fear of the unknown really gets to us. If you're uncomfortable with uncertainty, studies have shown, you're likely to have more fear and anxiety. And those with certain disorders, anything from panic and social anxiety disorders to OCD and depression, seem to be especially affected by this fear. So the universality of this frailty is understandable. Be kind to one another. Be kind to yourself. But recognizing it doesn't mean we must give in to the impulse. Over 200 years ago, Voltaire pointed out this farce. Quote, Doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is an absurd one. End quote. We owe it to one another and to ourselves not to perpetuate the pretense of perfection, but acknowledge the limitations of our knowledge. Once you do that, you're freed up to engage with others and learn, seeking to fill in the gaps together instead of ignoring or denying them. As poet Alexander Pope said, quote, A man should never be ashamed to own that he has been wrong, which is but saying, in other words, that he is wiser today than he was yesterday. End quote. I love the idea of making it a point of pride because you've learned something new. We're all works in progress, and that's to be embraced. You've changed, matured, and grown along the way. Maybe you went to school for one thing or started down one career path, but now you're following another. Maybe you loved a movie, show, or type of food, but gone back and found it doesn't hold up. Maybe something you once had trouble with is amazing to you now. And maybe you were indifferent or disliked somebody in your past, but you couldn't imagine your life without them today. That's lifelong learning. Recognizing that we've been wrong all along lets us set aside our egos and just grow. By giving up the idea of perfection, we can start a lifelong, wondrous, ever-rewarding journey to becoming ourselves. Buddha says, quote, the fool who knows he is a fool is that much wiser. The fool who thinks he's wise is a fool indeed. End quote. <laughs> if you refuse to admit error, mistake, or wrong, you can't learn. Intellectual humility is a prerequisite to wisdom. With intellectual humility, we aren't afraid of new experiences or new ideas, and that frees us from the terror of error and, ironically, from mistakes born of ignorance. Way back in episode 31, we talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect. If you overvalue your image of knowing it all, ironically, you may lack exactly the knowledge you need to recognize your own incompetence. Instead, if you acknowledge what you don't know, you can learn. You're free to fail and therefore begin to master. The master has failed more times than the beginner has even tried, right? <laughs> Stanford psychology professor Carol Dweck has identified two mindsets on intelligence and ability. Two broad categories or perspectives that describe our approach to how we think about intelligence. The first is a growth mindset, and the second is a fixed mindset. We've been describing these two mindsets all along, so you can probably guess many of their characteristics. 
There are two types of mindset we can cultivate, one that embraces problems as opportunities to learn and one that avoids them, often out of fear to fail. People that avoid conflicts can be described as having a fixed mindset. Those who see problems as interesting challenges have a growth mindset. Sometimes we like to switch from one to the other. People have a fixed mindset because they believe that basic qualities like intelligence or talents are fixed traits and that these traits are responsible for success. They often like to document past achievements. With a growth mindset, people believe that new abilities can be developed through practice. This view creates the love for learning that most great leaders and artists have in common. For them, life becomes an exciting journey with endless opportunity to figure out new things and advance. To develop a growth mindset, Dr. Carol Dweck, the Stanford University professor who coined the term, advises leaders, teachers, and parents to celebrate trying. Teachers should applaud students for any grade. If they studied hard, parents should encourage their children to develop any new skill they are interested in. Doing this will make them learn the skill of learning, which will also help them back in the classroom. To illustrate the difference in everyday life, let's observe two imaginary kids. Jay thinks you've either got it or you haven't. Anne knows that she can learn anything if she wants it enough. At physical exercise, Jay avoids challenges. When it's time to jump over the vaulting horse, he's afraid to look stupid and be laughed at. Anne embraces any challenge. It's exciting. It's fun. She knows that failing is part of learning, and if she tries hard, at the end, nobody will laugh at her. Jay avoids feedback. If the teacher tells him how to improve an assignment he has been working on, he takes it personally. Anne knows that to improve, she needs to listen to constructive criticism. She also understands that it's not her that is being assessed, but the results of her work on that one day. Anne likes to see others succeed. It inspires her. She knows that if she motivates her friends to get better, she herself is likely to grow too. If his friends try new things and succeed, Jay feels threatened. He's afraid that their success will put pressure on him to do more with his life too. Neuroscientists support the idea. They confirm that the brain grows like any other muscle in the body with training. Studies show that adopted twins tend to have higher intelligence compared to their siblings who stayed with their biological parents. The difference appears to come from the higher educational levels of adoptive parents and shows that nurture is more important than nature. A simple switch in how a person views a situation can mean the world of difference. Not just the outcome of that situation, the outcome of that person's place in life. As the late poet Samuel Beckett once said, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. Those with a fixed mindset believe that individuals are born with a certain amount of intelligence and gifts which are stable and unchangeable over time. Basically, with this attitude, you believe that people are born smart or dumb and remain that way their entire lives. So if you're born into a silo with a fixed setting, you spend your entire life in fear of falling into the inferior category. You avoid looking dumb at all costs because that would reveal an inherent deficiency in your intelligence, reveal you to be one of the dumb and to live with that label forevermore. Accordingly, you stay in your comfort zone, avoid challenges and struggle mightily to manage and maintain appearances, which is ironic because this mindset makes you believe that effort is fruitless. Now, this idea of effortless superiority or perfection 
at my university, Stanford University, called duck syndrome. What is duck syndrome? Well, you know how ducks appear to glide along the water effortlessly, but they're paddling madly underneath? That's how many Stanford students are, and many students at elite institutions. They look like they're not working hard. They go to parties, they have lots of other things, but they are paddling madly. They're studying secretly. <laughs> so they will look smart. Basically, if you were born smart, it isn't about your effort. And being smart should come effortlessly to you. And therefore, any effort you do expend makes you feel more and more of a fraud and inferior to your expectations of effortless genius. And given how closely your self-esteem, self-worth, and self-image is tied to perfection and performance, you will tend to ignore useful and accurate criticism because of how it damages your ego and self-serving bias. Research shows that those with a fixed mindset tend to plateau early and consequently don't reach their full potential in life. What a sad state of mind. But there's hope. The hope is in the other perspective, which you can cultivate if you've been inclined towards a fixed mindset. Let me tell you about a growth mindset. In a growth mindset, you believe that intelligence is malleable and changeable, that abilities can be developed through effort and persistence. Accordingly, you seek challenges, which are opportunities to grow and improve. In fact, you seek to learn at all times and at all costs. You will tend to persist in the face of obstacles because they represent progress in your outlook. And this is incredibly empowering and liberating, providing a sense of free will to face life boldly and with excitement instead of cowering in fear and worry at the unknown because it might make you fail, lose face, or expose you. When you cultivate a growth mindset, you believe that the huge burdens you bear and the changes you undergo are blessings for the challenges to come. You believe that your thoughts and actions directly impact your abilities, that what you put in matters, and thus you feel empowered to believe that your actions matter in all walks and ways of your life, that your job isn't just filling time or meaningless busy work, but an opportunity to stand for something, to hone your character, and to speak up for something, to practice listening, and to insist that the overlooked matter. <laughs> this isn't just a philosophical exercise. The neuroscience corroborates the growth perspective again and again. Just 20 years ago, most scientists believed that once we reached adulthood, our brains were pretty much fixed. Not that we were incapable of learning anything new exactly, but the assumption was that our brain's development phase was over. But thanks to huge advances in things like functional brain imaging, we have a clearer picture than ever of how our brains work, and we're beginning to observe some wonderful things. For one, we now know that the process of learning actually alters the structure of our brains at the cellular level. And what's more, it turns out that our brains never stop changing to make room for new information. This is the gift known as neural plasticity. Regardless of how old you are, you can physically grow your brain, you can speed up the circuits in your brain, and you can rewire your brain for increased performance and intelligence on specific tasks. Several years ago, researchers noticed that the more time a London taxi driver had spent driving a taxi in London, the larger a region of the brain associated with spatial awareness and memory, the hippocampus, had become. It was apparent that the more demands the taxi drivers put on their brains, the more neurons they were able to grow in an area of the brain that they needed to complete their job. But not all brain regions can expand in size. 
So other brain regions just make circuits faster. This is done by the process of myelination. When you focus intensely on a single subject for a period of time, you start forming white sheaths on your brain cells called myelin. This myelin acts like insulation on an electric circuit. A brain circuit with myelin can transmit information up to 10 times faster than a brain circuit without myelin. After you've added as much myelin as you can to brain cells, you can then increase the capacity of your brain by rewiring it so it activates neighboring brain regions to assist with certain tasks. We prove capable of rewiring our own brains, improving plasticity, enhancing our memory, our performance, etc. In the show notes, please find some more materials on our amazing potential if viewed from this perspective. Now applied to these DC films, is there any better example of the dichotomy between these two mindsets than the ideological battle between Batman and Superman in BVS? Now that I've described their characteristic, aren't these two practically textbook examples? Diamond absolutes, what falls is fallen, versus they will stumble, they will fall, but in time, they will join you in the sun. Well, let's begin with the Batman. Now, I know it seems errant to say the epitome of personal self-improvement is stuck in a fixed mindset, but that's the larger Batman mythos generally. Let's focus on this film specifically, and remember that narratively, we rarely get to see that development. Instead, Bruce descends from the sky, fully formed and finally established when we first see him as an adult. And that feeds into the mythology of the fixed mindset, that the chosen just show up smart, wealthy, powerful, capable, together, an inherently different class of being. The fixed mindset is reinforced in the opening and encapsulated in the line, what falls is fallen. Again, the fixed mindset is preoccupied with permanent categories and perfection. So, once stained, always stained. One fall, and now you are and forever remain the fallen. Throughout Batman's story, the idea of permanent stain persists. The branding, we've always been criminals. We were hunters, legacy, and so on. In the fixed mindset, you're either one thing or another. And once that nature is revealed, that is what you are. This absolute sense of categorization leads to and demands absolute response. The time before isn't perceived with realistic organic nuance, but crystalline perfection, diamond absolutes, shattered, sullied, and impossible to recover thereafter. In a fixed mindset, forever labeling their lives and deaths as meaningless and senseless chaos. Because perfection under the fixed mindset is ultimately unsustainable. Bruce grows weary of his own failures, which he brands upon his own heart. As we discussed in episode 55, Bruce feels Batman is at an end after a parade of humiliations. His parents' death, the loss of Robin, Wayne Manor in ruins, the fall of Wayne Financial. He's slain in his nightmares and can't sleep. He's isolated and alone, left to lie to Alfred about his intentions unsuccessfully and unable to convince his last confidant his convictions are correct. His attempt to hijack kryptonite ends with a busted Batmobile and a humiliating ultimatum, and the single employee he managed to save with his own two hands becomes a human bomb. Is it 
any wonder. With so much failure and frustration, Bruce devalues all that he's done for Gotham across two decades. Because of his own failures and because of the impossible standards imposed by his mindset, Bruce grows cynical about maintenance, possibility, promise, and potential. Instead, everyone is just the fallen or the fallen waiting to happen. No one is a good guy or a promise keeper. It's merely a matter of time for all. No one is innocent. No one stays good in this world. Least of all, those with the power to wipe out the human race. The fixed mindset creates a preoccupation with the most extreme, most grave, irreversible outcomes and possibilities. Bruce is waiting for Superman to break his promises, to burn it all down, and to be their enemy. And what Batman illustrates is that despite the moniker, a fixed mindset is not fixed, absolute and unchanging. Rather, the reality of the world is that it changes, but a fixed mindset leads to and results in attrition, wearing down, decay, and rot. Because life is imperfect, chaotic, and changing, and your initial ideal image keeps getting chipped away and compromised until there's nothing left but nihilism, bitterness, regret, and rage. In the fixed mindset, you still change. You just change for the worse, as you believe less and less in your ideal. If you have a fixed mindset, you essentially believe you've been dealt a hand of cards in the poker game of life, and you're stuck with those cards. If you happen to get good grades in school, and your parents praise you for it, then you might start to believe you've been dealt a royal flush. But as you get older and face competition in school, make mistakes on tests, and encounter challenging situations, you start fearing that the hand you've been dealt really isn't that good. To maintain the illusion that you're still smart and special and talented, you avoid doing anything that you might look bad at, and you simply lose interest and stop trying. Because if you show that you don't care and you're not really trying, then people can't really judge your full ability. New rules. We're criminals, Alfred. We've always been criminals. Nothing's changed. Scared of who? Well, there's a new kind of mean in him. He is angry and he's hunting. This was not the light that he was promised. Not by a long shot. Things are so dark that throwing away his life to take the life of another is the last glimpse of purpose left. This may be the only thing I do that matters. 20 years of fighting criminals amounts to nothing. Criminals are like weeds, Alfred. Pull one up, another grows in its place. This is about the future of the world. It's my legacy. Until he's humbled and adopts the growth mindset. Until he admits his mistake, his wrong, and learns. I failed him in life. I won't fail him in death. And then believes in our ability to improve, change, and grow. Man is still good. The growth mindset embodies grace and accordingly anticipates faltering, but always aspires for the hope of a better tomorrow. Where did Batman get that hope and mindset? Let's look at the man of tomorrow. This is a Genesis chamber. All Kryptonians were conceived in chambers such as this. Every child was designed to fulfill a predetermined role in our society as a worker, a warrior, a leader, and so on. Your mother and I believe Krypton had lost something precious, the element of choice, of chance. What if a child dreamed of becoming something other than what society had intended for him or her? What if a child aspired to something greater? You were the embodiment of that belief, Cal. 
talk about fixed versus growth. That is this take on Superman even before conception. As we just discussed, Krypton illustrates how a fixed mindset is attrition, stagnation, and decay. In a fixed world, you can only ever accumulate your failures to live up to your ideal. And even in an incredibly efficient and accurate engine like Krypton's, it's just headed towards a slow death. By comparison, a growth mindset does not dream of a fixed ideal. It knows the outcome can be unexpected and even aspire to something greater. Embedded in Krypton's mythology is how inherent to growth is the risk of failure. Krypton's era of expansion failed. However, they took away the wrong lesson, never trying again and giving up on growth. Once that was decided, Krypton would never be anything more than it already was. They had given up on the idea of potential, of promise, and of progress, and so they calcified and died. Jorel's admonishment for them to look to the stars as their ancestors did is a proper growth mindset to acknowledge and embrace failure so as to learn from it and to continue onward and keep growing. Surely, it was Jor-El's study of their earlier eras that gave him insight into how to send his own son across the stars. And lest we think these lessons come only from Krypton, let's land in Kansas and consider the Kents. All these changes that you're going through, one day, one day you're going to think of them as a blessing. And when that day comes, you're going to have to make a choice. A choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. The Kents completely embrace the growth mindset, as they never expect Clark to be perfect or live up to perfection. Quite the contrary, Clark is expected to make choices which impact who he will be. You just have to decide what kind of man you want to grow up to be, Clark, because whoever that man is, good character or bad, he's, he's going to change the world. There's no presumption or assumption of character, but instead acknowledgement that that is something to be forged gradually over time through choices and action. Growth mindset people don't believe talent and intelligence is a gift. They believe you have to work for it. A person with a growth mindset firmly believes that with the right strategy and enough effort and time, they can get better at anything. A growth mindset person believes they're always getting smarter, so they're less afraid of being labeled stupid. They know that even if they've been dealt a bad hand in the poker game of life, they can continue to draw more cards by putting in more effort and finding better strategies until they eventually have a great hand of cards. Every flashback is taken as a teaching moment. In the grade school flashback, despite disrupting the class and suffering the scorn of his classmates, did the Kents react like Krypton and give up? No. The next time we see young Clark in Kansas, he's riding a school bus showing the Kents persevered. Clark was going to have to learn to focus and overcome this issue, not be taken out of school to save him from having to confront the problem ever again. And indeed, he did learn to focus, and it served him in his first battle with Zod, the burden and challenge and change becoming a blessing just as Jonathan had promised. In the maybe flashback, as they debrief the bus rest, Jonathan has the humility to admit uncertainty and keep their larger principles in perspective. In a fixed mindset, Clark would have simply failed to keep his secret, and that would be that. He failed, he's exposed as a failure, and he should ever endeavor never to fail again. But instead, Jonathan uses the opportunity to talk about the importance of the secret, to give Clark empathy about how others feel, and to sympathize with the difficulty of the situation. The emphasis isn't on failure or performance 
performance, but what he could learn and how he could grow. In the bullying flashback, Clark sees with his own eyes that people can change. Pete goes from an annoyance to an ally. And again, Jonathan doesn't project perfectionism, but instead admits his own desire for retribution. He takes a tough moment and uses it to teach, to tell Clark he's got to think through the consequences of his actions, instead of reacting first on his feelings. In episode 56, we talked about all the things Clark learned in that encounter because Jonathan gave him the space to learn it, from knowing that he has a temper to controlling it, understanding and respecting his own power, to seeing Pete's change and the effects of his prior kindness. And finally, how much his father trusts, understands, and loves him. Having instilled into him a growth mindset, that's how Clark perceives himself, others, and the world. That you can right wrongs, change things for the better, and that it takes time and requires grace. Even without Jonathan to counsel him after a tragic tornado, Clark approaches it as something to learn from. The loss of a loved one does not mean never love again, never risk losing love again. Instead, he forges forward and loves Lois despite her dangerous lifestyle. (laughs) Remember, he was open to having his interpretation of events changed by Lois. If he had a fixed mindset, after Lois insists that his story will get out and that she should tell it, he wouldn't sincerely ask her, what do you think? She's already shown her cards, and Clark has carried his view of events for some 16 years by this point. Asking that question is confronting himself, and would be threatening to a fixed perspective. However, a growth perspective allows for the possibility of change. The world wasn't ready then. Could it be ready now? The Kents always taught Clark it would be possible. One day, just not yet. And let's highlight that before we continue on Clark's journey. Clark was raised to understand that progress is a process, and that means time. So when you consider your knowledge, your abilities, your character, or whatever you're working on, please take a page from Superman and say, one day, or use that three-letter word, yet. I don't know yet. I will one day. I'm not ready yet. I'll be ready one day. Now, like any principle, this isn't licensed to exploit these principles disingenuously, to forsake all responsibility, effort, or progress because it takes time. As raised rhetorically in Romans 6.1, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? (laughs) No, obviously no. We're talking about sincerely trying in good faith, not rhetorical ways to reply to criticism, right? If you're asked to do the dishes, don't be cute and say, they're not done yet. They will be one day. Authenticity and sincerity, that's another episode. Let's get back to how the growth mindset allows Clark to develop during his journey, instead of resenting it. We can talk all day about what he learned living a thousand lives walking North America, but let's skip to encountering Jor-El, who affirms the growth mindset. The people of Earth are different from us, it's true. But ultimately, I believe that's a good thing. They won't necessarily make the same mistakes we did. Not if you guide them, Cal. Jorel wants Earth to learn from Krypton's mistakes, and meanwhile, sees Earth's potential. Not if you give them hope. Embodied within that hope is the fundamental belief in the potential of every person to be a force for good. You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun, Cal. In time. You will help them 
English one does. Jorel does not say you are the ideal right now as you are. Jorel is fully aware that it is a process, it will take time, and it will involve stumbling and falling. Clark himself reflects on Jorel's words just as he stumbled and fell from the sky, showing that he still identifies with humanity, their path, and their growth. Jorel's words propel him into the sky even after plummeting previously. They reaffirm his willingness to try the uncertain, to take a chance, take a leap of faith, and be courageous. The final act against Zod is filled with uncertainties and unknowns. It would be all too easy for this abyss to swallow him whole and for the dragon to devour him. But Superman fights and prevails and is not a perfectionist by far. This fight is easily subject to criticism, faulted or flawed. And if Superman was a fixed mindset person, the BZE is a fearic failure. He hangs up the cape, retreats back into anonymity, and Superman is never heard from again. No, Superman continues forth, and though it's difficult, is able to hear criticism and consider it, able to take it and learn and grow from it, and is able to not let the criticism become his identity. This is something that Jonathan instilled into him long ago, distinguishing how people respond from who they are. People are afraid of what they don't understand. Doesn't mean people are fearful and ignorant, or that Clark was frightening and incomprehensible. It meant that time and tact was necessary to get people back to being people. As Martha promises, we knew that one day the whole world would see the beautiful truth about you. Time, the future, is a critical ingredient. I reiterate the point. A growth perspective is about potential and possibility, looking forwards into the future at what you could be, not looking into the past and defining yourself by what you've lost or failed to achieve. With his natural birth, Lara acknowledged that he could be an outcast, a freak, or die. But for Jor-El, it was about the potential to go beyond their programming. When Clark saves Pete, who is Pete to him but a bully? Except that Clark had been raised to value the divine spark in every person and sincerely honor that potential. Not who Pete was to him in the there and now, but who Pete could be. When Clark saves Lois, who is she but a threat to his secret? A nosy journalist who wants to broadcast the truth. Except Clark sees in her potential understanding. Clark has an open mind to the multiple dimensions of a man. When he's told that Caesar Santos was also a father, it doesn't fall on deaf ears. Even a criminal can have potential, even a bully, even an evil mastermind, even his would-be murderer. Superman has the humility to admit that he's wrong. He shouldn't have tried to strong-arm Bruce. He shouldn't have judged him from afar with incomplete information. Bruce, please, I was wrong. And even as Batman is going to run him through, Superman still sees the heart of a hero, the potential possibility that Batman might Save Martha. A completely different mindset. A completely different perspective. One that shakes and shatters Bruce's as he's forced to accommodate this new information. And it finds a place in his mind where he stands transposed upon his parents' killer. And the head trip forces Bruce to reframe Superman in a more compassionate light. That's hope, right? That even if you have a fixed mindset, just like Bruce, you can change. 
Not necessarily easily or without cost, but it's the hero's journey, not the hero's vacation. And something that keeps me up at night is the fear that people are developing a false growth mindset. It's this idea, if it's good, I have it. So a lot of people are kind of declaring they have it, but they don't. They think it just means open-minded or being a nice person, or maybe they're saying they have it for fixed mindset reasons. I want you to judge me as being the right kind of person. So developing a growth mindset is really a journey. It's a lifelong journey of monitoring your trigger points and trying to approach things in a more growth mindset way of taking on the challenges, sticking to them, learning from them. Tell them, no, you can't just say it. You have to take a journey. Okay, so we've talked some about humility, but we haven't broken it down yet, and it's easy to start suggesting common definitions and descriptions that wind up being wanting when you start to compare the concepts against confidence, insecurity, certainty, low self-esteem, pride, or arrogance. It gets blurry or confusing if you only compare the actions instead of the attitudes. For example, avoiding the spotlight can be an example of humility, but also insecurity, low self-esteem, or lack of confidence. It can even be arrogant false humility. Recognizing your shortcomings, mistakes, and failings, being uncertain, can show humility or insecurity. So how do we distinguish humility from insecurity? Well, if we look at the etymology of humility, one of its Latin roots means from the earth. So we might say that humility is about being grounded, having a truthful and respectful view of others, yourself, circumstances, and the world. It means having the self-awareness to know your own strengths and weaknesses. Insecurity is all about warped ego, which can manifest in two ways. The first is in the form of being a fault finder who tears themselves apart without grace or kindness, unsure of their own abilities and lacking faith in their experience, lacking confidence in their knowledge. They don't understand themselves and thus they feel like they can't handle the world. Unable to secure themselves, they rip themselves to shreds and they tell themselves, I can't, over and over. And it's a perverse form of self-protection for the meager sense of self that remains, preemptively rejecting self to avoid being defeated by the world. In a twisted way, it's a form of pride to say, I know how awful I am, better than the world can ever tell me, so I'm not even going to try. Obviously, this is a hellish state of being that's hard to endure, so insecurity often manifests itself a second way. Instead of turning inwards on themselves, the insecure person does everything they can to keep their ego afloat atop the ruins of others. They scramble to build themselves up in every way they can, but inevitably they find it easier just to tear others down, denigrate, destroy, and disrespect so that they feel better about themselves in relative comparison. Since it's all about maintaining ego, they just have to fight every slight and are easily provoked. And since this tearing down gives them a boost, they find it difficult to pass up a target or let things go. And this describes Lex Luthor to a T. Note that if it weren't for his ego, Lex would have every reason to be secure. However, his issues compliment Wallace Keefe to show us that as crippling as adversity can be, if you don't have humility, success can be just as crippling. His perfection of his position gives him a massive inferiority complex when that's threatened. In an interview with Mark Hughes, Zach said, quote, that's how Lex underestimates humanity in a lot of ways. He doesn't think we're capable of rising, so he has to bring the God down. 
right? End quote. I mean, I think Lex is threatened by Superman's power because I think Lex is the second most powerful person in Metropolis. And the second most powerful person is probably the most difficult position to be in. And in a way, the second most powerful person is really the least most powerful person because they're the one who always feel probably the most threatened. And I think Lex looks at Superman as a real personal threat. Lex projects all of his issues onto Superman and seeks to tear him down in order to restore his own sense of priority in the universe to its proper place on top. Lex is so petty that he has to respond to a rebuke with piss as part of his plot. Psychologist Adam Grant describes our reaction to critique in relation to our ego. Think about what happens when you get criticized. Like physically, your shoulders tighten, your breath gets shallower, negative feedback sets off alarm bells. It actually touches a nerve in your body. And psychologically, your mind races. You start to put up shields and mount a counterattack. If you were a peacock, you'd strut. If you were an ape, you'd beat your chest. But humans have another kind of reaction. There was a study a few decades ago that said our ego can get so defensive in these situations that it becomes its own little totalitarian regime. It starts to control the flow of information to our brains the way a dictator controls the media. Think about that. Your own ego is censoring what you hear. But if we never hear criticism, we'll never improve. Grant has a turn of phrase that calls our insecure instincts our proving mode and our humble better selves our improving mode. <laughs> when we're insecure, our mind rushes to prove or justify everything we do with everything we already believe. That's a primal, emotional, lower self. However, if we consciously engage improving mode, that growth mindset, that's the self that wants to know exactly how good we are and every single thing we can do to get better. Improving mode knows that we're works in progress and relishes every opportunity to progress. Instead of protecting our ego, humility, on the other hand, sets aside ego for truthfulness and respect. It doesn't mean having a low opinion of yourself, but having a truthful perspective of yourself in relation to others, yourself, circumstances, and the world, each given proper respect. Understanding how to relate with greater truthfulness can arise out of experience and intentionality. When we experience awe, the overview effect or pursue transcendence, the scope of our worldview increases and we see a bigger connected picture and our humbling small part in it. When we are exposed to chaos, difficulty, tragedy, and injustice, we understand the fragility of reality and the unfairness of life, and we are humbled to appreciate our present positions as the confluence of countless circumstances for which we can claim little credit. When we challenge ourselves with other viewpoints, other cultures, other positions, and people, we get closer to the truth of ourselves, how we can improve, and beyond just attaining greater achievement from success, we develop better, more sophisticated, more nuanced, more compassionate selves from our many failures. Having walked the path, we deeply intuit that progress and growth took time and iteration, and we are graceful and kind to ourselves, empathetic to others, and try not to judge. There, but by the grace of God, go I. 
Having an accurate perception of self, others, and the world means not an inflated sense of self, but an honest assessment of how your gifts can and ought to be used for the benefit of others. And then you can engage not out of reputation or self-righteousness, but because you've thought through, lived out, and tested your knowledge, values, positions, and gifts, seen their benefit, and seek to bring that to others as an offering. And you pay all others that same respect to expect that they have some to offer in return. You're open to their perspectives, corrections, and counter-arguments for the goal of good, rather than inflating or deflating egos. A humble person doesn't hide their talents for fear of praise. They employ them for the good irrespective of praise. That's exactly Superman. And that's why it's a misinterpretation to claim Superman in these films is insecure. Rather, the following clip shows how Lego Batman is delightfully insecure. <laughs> Despite all the great work Batman has done for us, Gotham City is still the most crime-ridden city in the world. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. Excuse me. <clears throat> yes. Bruce Wayne, billionaire, bon vivant, gallivanter, playboy, Gotham's most eligible bachelor like 90 years in a row. That's me right there. I know who you are, Mr. Wayne. You bet you do. Quick question. What is your problem with Batman? And also, what the heck, dude? I'm glad you asked, Mr. Wayne. I'm not a Batman hater, but we don't need an unsupervised adult man karate chopping poor people in a Halloween costume. We need to take what's good about Batman and marry it to actual laws and proper ethics and accountability. I hate everything you just said. <laughs> if Superman was insecure, his emphasis would be on speaking out to self-aggrandize, printing puff pieces in his alter ego, tearing down his critics for their hypocrisy, and blaming his issues on others at every turn. Instead, Superman silently serves without real regard for his reputation. He acts not for praise or for fear of it, but acts because he has honestly assessed his ability to contribute and does. If there's a chance I can save Earth by turning myself in, shouldn't I take it? Look, I'm here to help. What are you going to do when you're not saving the world? When I want to go somewhere dangerous, start asking questions. The fact is, maybe he's not some sort of devil or Jesus character. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right thing. Superman doesn't shy away from those who seem to worship him, but he also rescues and saves those who curse and condemn him. When Kahina Ziri calls him out on the news, he doesn't rebut her in the paper. He doesn't confront her or bully her as Superman. No, he goes to her as Clark Kent to hear her side of the story and respectfully consider it. Not necessarily to accept her every proposition, but to see what he can learn. And partly in response, he doesn't make an empty verbal statement as Superman, but instead lets his actions speak. One interpretation of what he might be trying to say is, if this breach of international lines came across as American foreign policy playing God, watch me now and see that I only want to help. I only want to rescue, and I do so for the world. I'm not a tool of the United States. I did not mean to send that message. And yet, they aren't getting it, and of course that's frustrating. The miscommunication might account for his expression more than the insecurity over reputation. If humility releases reputation, that's another way to interpret Martha's advice before the Capitol Hill hearing. But they see what you do, and they know who you are. You're not a killer, a threat. Be their hero, Clark. Be their monument, be their angel. Be anything they need you to be. Or be none of it. You don't owe this world a thing. 
You never did. Note that Martha is not describing his good works or actions. She's describing their perception of him and his reputation. She's not telling him to stop his heroics. She's saying the world isn't owed his image. She's giving him the option of letting that go, irrespective of the heroics. Or in plain language, you're worried about what they think about the symbol of Superman. You don't have to defend that, son. One of the most overlooked lines is Martha saying, they see what you do. And they know who you are. In this life, you can aspire to preserving an image, or you can be known authentically, truly, as who you are. If you're insecure, you may do everything in your power to project that you're nice, harmless, inoffensive, and accommodating. A powerless non-entity. But that fake persona can never be known, can never express its earnest wants, desires, and opinions, can't say no, and quietly resents its audience. And what I love about this Superman is that he isn't a shrinking violet who cares more about image or being polite than actual compassion and causes. No, Clark stands up to Perry. Clark shows Lois that he wants her, and he calls Lois out for hiding the bullet. Clark spars with Bruce in their brief interview, and as Superman, he tells Batman what he wants. He was ready to confront Congress. He tells Lois he's leaving. He takes on Lex, and so on. This is no passive people pleaser, just reacting to everyone else's wishes and whims. He's been raised by Martha and Jonathan to think for himself, to know what others think, but not let that define him. Even if the people are afraid and hateful, they would one day see the beautiful truth. Martha is reminding him that his actions already speak for him and reveal his true self. He is already known, and that frees Clark to go in humbly for the sake of communication, learning, and growth, and not to defend his ego. Arguably, it's healthy to understand that the public symbol of Superman is something separate from his self. <laughs> that said, this episode is about growth and humility, and Superman must have messed up somewhere along the way to take full advantage of these principles. And I sincerely love that, because it's pointless for a perfect paragon to grow. A faultless and flawless Superman is the embodiment of the fixed mindset and all its issues. We like to think of our champions and idols as superheroes who are born different from us. We don't like to think of them as relatively ordinary people who made themselves extraordinary. Even from a fandom perspective, I'm sure you know those who prescribe to such an absolute vision of a property that it makes it almost impossible for them to enjoy any subsequent iteration, evolution, or continuation because all they represent is ever accumulating divergence from their initial fixed ideal. They can't love anything that's even the least bit different from before and they grow increasingly bitter about it. It's garbage! What's the meaning of this, you sanctimonious a sofa spud. Well, you are praising something that I find atrocious, so I'm here to ruin your enjoyment of it by pointing out its flaws. I feel bad for kids today. Superhero cartoons used to be so much better. I learned something today, Titans. Not everything old is good, and not everything new is bad. Yeah, 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 we get it. If you put Superman on that pedestal, it's hard to enjoy anything ongoing because every new creator comes at it with their own perspective and there's going to be countless variations and modifications, changes and circumstances to mortify you if you're that rigid. Every time he 
fails to live up to your standards, you market a mar and deny it until there's nothing left. But I digress. In BVS, I think you see Superman's insecurity come out to some degree on three occasions. We see it in the Batman Ultimatum. We see it on the balcony with Lois after the bombing. And we see it in response to Martha's kidnapping before he goes to Batman. And I love how psychologically true this film is. Instead of airbrushing out our frailties and failures, mistakes and errors, it stands by the moral reality that we all mess up and all can be redeemed. It's a common comment about the Bible that if it were simply disingenuous propaganda, it would have edited out all the difficulties, inconsistencies, contradictions, and challenges. All the saints would be perfect paragons, but instead, they're real people with problematic pasts, but they're not forsaken for the potential that they'd pass on. A growth mindset, or the hero's cycle, believes in redemption. And isn't it fitting that the hero of heroes, Superman, exhibit it too? There's no way to model redemption without first falling into error. And again, I think there's a misconception. People think they're one or the other. Exactly. That's a big misconception. And you hear a lot of people saying, oh, I'm a growth mindset person. Yes. And it turns out that we're all a mixture, often depending on the environment we're in. So maybe you're often in a mindset of growth, but maybe when you're asked to go out of your comfort zone or you hit an obstacle or you meet someone who's a lot better than you at something you thought you were really good at, whoops, that could put you into more of a fixed mindset. And what you have to learn over time by taking this journey is to understand what triggers you back into a fixed mindset and how to return to a place of growth. With the bombing, we can see Superman's insecurity come out because he struggles to extract a lesson and instead goes to identity and blame. So he loses faith and blames himself for not seeing, for his idealism. And he says Superman was never real. When you're unsure of your foundations, thus insecure, doubt makes you question everything and assign blame both inward and out. Superman verbalizes his self-blame, condemns himself for being so naive, but his silent accusation is against the world for being so dark and messed up that it drove him to this point. He disowns Earth and laments the loss of Krypton. How could this be his world if it hurts him so much? The important thing is to see that Clark doesn't stay in that place or mindset. He's been raised not to take those feelings out on the world, but to take time out and reflect. Clark takes the time to ascend the mountain and learn something that allows him to go on. And I want to point out that this isn't necessarily possible without the pain or some insecurity. Clark's depth of feeling that this situation is actually painful for him, that he isn't just grimacing stoically and pushing on and forward as if nothing happened, or worse, smiling as if insane and saying slogans and banal truisms and empty platitudes. No, the pain is normal, healthy, and eventually drives growth. The pain connects him with humanity, and specifically with his father, because pain and loss are universal. The pain humbles Clark and makes him teachable. Feeling the pain lets you know that you've lost your way and helps you find it again. In some cases, it's learning that pain is just a part of the process and unavoidable. Suffering is not always a signifier of sin. Sometimes it's simply circumstance. But in other cases, it's seeing where you went wrong and learning from it. 
And in a movie as deep and as rich as this, unsurprisingly, he learns both. He learns that he's been on the right path wanting to help people and that unintended collateral consequences are inevitable. But he also learns where he went wrong, blaming himself and others and taking on the failure as an identity. Jonathan corrects him to say that the feelings are real and valid, but these events neither make him a monster nor a hero. That the relationships built and fostered are what are real and help us navigate these difficulties. And that takes us to our final moment of insecurity that I want to touch on. Lastly, Lex's ultimatum. Despite the message on the mountain, Lex's hostage situation threatens to tear that lesson apart, which is why Clark again has a crisis of faith and says no one stays good in this world. And I want to stress the moral realism of this, because how often do we think we've learned our lesson, made a breakthrough, or mastered something, only to mess up again almost immediately afterwards? Rarely do we learn lessons once for all time. Almost all questions of character are tested again and again, over and over, and in the process, we stumble, fall, and get up again. Almost imperceptibly, our character grows, and the power of a well-developed character, of long-term, steady growth, is that even when you're rocked in the moment, your foundations are there to help you recover. And you can grow those foundations if you challenge yourself to do things you haven't already mastered. The more you do, the more you'll grow. Don't turn down opportunities because you're worried about embarrassing yourself. Don't think that you're good enough or thought that it would be too hard. In BVS, Superman keeps trying again and again, iterating approaches, growing in experience as he goes. The idea that abilities can be developed, they engage deeply, they process the error, they learn from it, and they correct it. Are we raising kids who don't know how to dream big dreams? Their biggest goal is getting the next A? This process praise creates kids who are hardy and resilient. We taught them that every time they push out of their comfort zone to learn something new and difficult, the neurons in their brain can form new, stronger connections, and over time, they can get smarter. This happened because the meaning of effort and difficulty were transformed. Before, effort and difficulty made them feel like giving up. But now, effort and difficulty, that's when their neurons are making new connections, stronger connections. That's when they're getting smarter. In story, it's clear that he hasn't really worried about his international image, but he seemingly tries to make a greater international impact, which one comedian commentator takes as Superman denying his American roots. In story, it's clear that he hasn't ever acted as judge and jury over human crimes, but he crosses that line with Batman for the first time. And while it's a mistake that he admits later, Superman learns a lot from it. In story, it's clear that he hasn't made a public statement and that he's reluctant to do so, that it's going to be uncomfortable and filled with risk. What risk? Well, as a powerful person, his words carry weight that critics too easily ignore in assuming Superman should be able to speak freely. Let me just put it this way. No one cares what a random guy has to say about weapons of mass destruction or trade wars, but we hang on every word if that person has the capacity to follow through. Or I don't even need to be so dramatic. The careless words of a parent can completely devastate a child. Regardless, the easy thing to do would be to stay silent, but Superman stepped up, even if Lex twisted it to his own ends. All these trials and tribulations go into building a competent Superman. 
I think we want a quietly confident Superman whose self-assurance is based in fact, experience, and competence, not blind bluster, ignorance, pride, or arrogance in a world where everyone thinks they're right and it's all too easy to find support for your position. What we need from Superman isn't bland and safe absolutism. Self-righteousness and certainty in areas almost completely devoid of debate or suggestion of controversy or, if daring, to be unapologetically partisan by ridiculing and rejecting arenas where reasonable minds differ. No, what we need is a Superman who has seen us from space, as an outsider and an alien who wanted to belong, model empathy, bridge-building, learning and growth, how we get to the sun. Not by flawless maintenance of alleged perfection, but by dogged effort and iteration, supernatural assistance, and giving grace to ourselves and others. Not by forcing the world to make sense, imposing our will and judgment upon it with all our power, but by molding ourselves day by day, step by step, to be better and contributing all that we can. It's through experience and iteration that our empathy expands. Consider how being on the receiving end of Lex's diatribe and ultimatum might have helped Superman understand the error of confronting Batman that way and how he was wrong. Let's look at some of the similarities between Lex's ultimatum to Superman and Superman's ultimatum to Batman. In both cases, the ultimatum comes unexpectedly from left field, and it is their first in-costume interaction. While the audience and Lois knew what Lex was up to, this is Superman's first costumed encounter with Lex. On the other hand, just like while the audience knows Bruce has his sights set on Superman since the BCE, this is chronologically Batman's first caped crossover with the Kryptonian, setting aside nightmares from another time. The terms and the timing of the meetings are entirely set by the ultimatum giver, without warning and without regard for the receiver. Lex doesn't care what else Superman might be doing, just as Superman doesn't care about Batman's car chase. In both cases, the giver couches his ultimatum with the pretext of serving a greater good, but in truth harbors personal grievances that motivate. Lex presents it as helping the public to see the truth, but is actually consumed with the powerlessness of his own abuse. And Superman is so concerned about a reign of terror and civil rights, but is personally accused of the same. Both acknowledge and dismiss the dual identity, or are more concerned with the concept than the man. Lex lets on that he knows Superman's secret identity, but is only concerned with questions of divinity. Superman tells the vigilante that the bat is dead, meaning he doesn't care what the man does. And of course, there is the total disparity in power. Lex makes Superman kneel before him, and Superman stops Batman's signature ride in its tracks. Lex takes off into the sky, leaving Superman wrecked, just as Superman takes off, leaving Batman in his wreck. Finally, consider how both recipients respond. I'll take you in without breaking you which is more than you deserve, is just another way of saying you deserve to be broken. Isn't that exactly what Batman means when he says, do you bleed? You will. Isn't that what he's aiming for by saying, you're not brave, men are brave, you were never even a man. Now, maybe these parallels are accidental, or do they give Superman supreme insight into how Batman may have felt once he is on the receiving end of such an ultimatum? All the anger and despair Superman felt on that helipad, he now understands is what he did to Batman, even with less malice. And he understands how even somebody with good intentions like himself can be driven to do wrong. No one stays good in this world. 
is Superman's supreme identification with Batman's worldview in this story. Through that, he's humbled and recognizes he's wrong, and he doesn't go into the fight a pure utilitarian or enraged at Batman, feeling entitled to take his life. He wants to reach Batman, and eventually he does. Save Martha is Batman's supreme identification with Superman's worldview in this story. That irrespective of pain, persecution, or circumstance, you see the best in others for the sake of helping others. We're elegantly delivered deep viewpoint diversity without heavy-handed debate, but each inhabiting the other's life intensely and intimately. Superman receives a crash course in personally experiencing how a hero goes awry, and Batman recalls how it is to be powerless to do anything but hope for a hero. That common experience forges an understanding between the two that they trust. Superman entrusting Martha to Batman, and Batman who intended to slay Superman for the sake of the world, now entrusting the safety of the world to Superman in stopping Lex. This bridge building is a far more critical lesson for us to learn today than antiseptic or abstract speeches about due process, excessive force, or preemptive action. No doubt a polemic delivery of these old arguments might have satisfied some looking for a checklist conflict between the world's finest, but isn't it more amazing to use them as illustrations on our approaches to life and connection that even in our darkest hour and most malevolent mode, rescue is possible. Hope exists. Someone who identifies with our suffering and has taken it on can pull us back into the light. Incredible. <laughs> okay, let's summarize what we've learned and wrap this up. We looked at the problem of perfectionism and performance under a fixed mindset, which grows increasingly cynical over time. How fear of a fixed label keeps us from trying new things, challenging ourselves, or risking failure. And we contrasted that with a growth mindset, which finds experimentation, iteration, time, and grace are all a part of the process of growth. How embracing challenge and failure as opportunities to learn makes us courageous. We looked at how humility helps us grow and distinguished it from insecurity which can hold us back. And we wrapped with how understanding all these mindsets can give us empathy to connect with others and lead them out of darkness. They don't have to stay where they are. They can be forgiven. They can be redeemed. They can go forwards and find hope. We can all go towards the sun. Okay, I've rambled on long enough, so thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. As a little bonus at the end, I've got some clips that I set aside, but which reinforce some of the topics talked about. First, we've got Professor Brian Little explaining how malleable our traits can be. Second, Susan Kane talks about adapting to public speaking as an introvert. Third and finally, Professor Allison Gopnik contrasts two philosophies to parenting. Please enjoy. You're the answer, son. Brian Little is a wildly popular personality psychology professor, now at the University of Cambridge.
Neurons and narratives, the biological stuff and the stories we tell ourselves, they both influence our personality. But so does the situation we're in. Studies have shown that personality, at least for some of us, shifts depending on the circumstance. For some people, being adaptable is one of their traits. It's called self-monitoring. High self-monitors are able to flex themselves to the demands of the situation. When they're at a funeral, they act funereal. When they're at a party, they act party. There are different people in different situations. What I sometimes call stand-up chameleons. They change <laughs> color to suit the context. A low self-monitor is the opposite. He knows what he wants, he knows what he feels, and he isn't going to bend himself to the situation if it calls for different behavior. Why should he? It's not just at parties. Self-monitoring can affect every part of our lives. High self-monitors, when they eat steak, will taste it first to see what it's like before putting salt on. Whereas low self-monitors, they know they like salt, they don't like salt, and they go ahead and they do whatever they feel without testing it out first. I guess the first thing that I was puzzled by in that study was that people put salt on steak, which was new to me. But uh, uh, I think one of the first things that self-monitoring did for me was it it opened up this idea that maybe my personality isn't fixed. If if I discover that I have a set of personality traits, like I'm an introvert, or, you know, I'm highly agreeable. Am I stuck with those traits? No. To simply say I'm an introvert or I'm agreeable misses the fact that in many situations you may not be. I think that people have to be careful that once they've diagnosed themselves or something like that, that they don't see it as something from which they can't escape. We have far more degrees of freedom to shape our lives than those strong trait-is-your-destiny positions would encourage us to believe. I think there are fates beyond traits. You're the answer, son. In the workplace, the evidence shows that high self-monitors are more effective on average. They get higher performance reviews and get promoted more often. They're better at getting ahead and getting along. The time they spend adapting allows them to overcome obstacles and obstinate people. Self-monitoring is all about assessing the situation and adapting. And the good news is that many of us underestimate our adaptability. Remember Susan Cain, who wrote the book Quiet? <laughs> Hi, my name is Susan, and I'm an introvert. My fear of public speaking was, was intensified really for the next few decades. Overload was a big concern for Susan, because when she finished writing her book, she knew she would have to overcome her middle school fear of talking in front of big groups. When you have a fear-inducing or horrifying thing happen to you, it gets encoded into your amygdala and in your brain. And so for the rest of your life, every time you encounter a situation like that, your amygdala is sending you the signal, get the hell out of here. So I set out on what I called my year of speaking dangerously. (laughs) Um, And I was drawing on what I knew from the psychological research, which is if you're afraid of anything, the thing to do is, is to expose yourself to the thing that you fear in very small and manageable doses. I remember feeling incredibly raw and exposed. And it was just incredibly unnatural. So she had to figure out how to adapt. She had gotten to know Brian Little during her deep dive into the science of introversion. She ended up drawing on his theory of acting out of character. Acting out of character is where you engage in in action that runs counter to your disposition. And I think there are many reasons why we do that. But the two that are most prevalent, I believe, are we do it out of professionalism and we do it out of love. So it's a call to um, stand up, lean in. 
be um, what you may be afraid to admit could be disingenuous, but isn't disingenuous. Acting out of character often feels inauthentic, but that feeling doesn't hold you back when you're pursuing a passion. You know, if I do get butterflies, let's say, before I speak, what I will always tell myself is, okay, there's at least one person in this audience who has a child who's suffering because their introversion is misunderstood um, or who has a marriage that's not doing as well as it could because they don't understand the differences between their temperaments. And if I can reach just one person and make that life better, then it's then it's worth it. all the butterflies in the world. Like, we'll all do almost anything for our passions, right? You know, whether they're other people or ideas or whatever, it's, it's almost the definition of a passion that you, you're so consumed by it and you love it so much, you'll do almost anything in its service, including taking the stage, which now, by the way, I do all the time and I don't even think twice about it. Are you just a raging extrovert now? Oh God, no, 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 not at all. But still on any given day, I would so much rather be, you know, in in my office or in a cafe with my laptop, um, sitting around thinking about ideas or listening to great music or like that. You know, that's really my sweet spot. For Susan, that sweet spot is way over on the introverted end of the spectrum. In the U.S., about a quarter of the population is the opposite, on the extroverted end, which is where about half of all leaders and managers are. But many people are somewhere in the middle. They're ambiverts, equally comfortable being the center of attention and being in the background. I found that ambiverts actually make more effective leaders and more productive salespeople. They strike a balance of talking and listening. Adapting is easy when you're in the middle on a trait. It takes more work if you're on the extreme, like Susan. The goal is not to change your personality. It's to expand your comfort zone. And that means sometimes you need to recharge. Brian Little encourages us all to find our restorative niches, places you can go or projects you can do to reorient. For Susan, it's sitting in a coffee shop or listening to music. So she works well with people who give her that space. But if you're not aware that your traits are flexible, they can become shackles. So often, we chain ourselves to who we were at summer camp or how we failed in middle school. I think personality should be more of an anchor. It gives you the freedom to pursue new possibilities without drifting too far away from your place. Your personality matters, but your ability to adapt matters more. Who you become is not about the traits you have. It's about what you decide to do with them. You're the answer, son. According to psychology professor Alison Gopnik, the different philosophies of the carpenter and the gardener play out every day in how parents interact with their children. I think it was kind of natural for people to think, this is like going to school and working, and if, if I can just find the right manual or the right secret handbook, I'm going to succeed at this task the same way that I succeeded in my classes or I succeeded in my job. Alison Gopnik is a professor of psychology and philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the author of several books about children development, her most recent book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, explores the different ways parents can raise kids and the consequences of those choices. Your book is built around an analogy, parents behaving like gardeners, parents behaving like carpenters. Unpack those analogies for me. Well, if you look at the prevailing culture of parents and caregiving in the United States, even in Europe now, it's a picture that's a lot like the picture you might imagine if you thought about a carpenter. And the idea is that if you 
just do the right things, get the right skills, read the right books, you're going to be able to shape your child into a particular kind of adult. And that picture is very different from the kind of picture that comes from the science. The picture that comes from the science is much more like being a gardener. Now, one thing about being a gardener is you never know what's going to happen in the garden. The things that you plan fail, but then wonderful things happen that you haven't actually planned. And there's actually a deeper reason for that. And the reason is that what being a gardener is all about is creating a rich, nurturant, but also variable, diverse, dynamic ecosystem in which many, many different things can happen and a system that can respond to the environment in unpredictable kind of ways. And I think the science suggests that being a caregiver for human beings is much more like being a gardener than being a carpenter. It's much more about providing a protected space in which unexpected things can happen than it is like shaping a child to come out to be a particular kind of desirable adult. What do you think the harm is of parents trying to be carpenters? Well, I mean, it's a tricky question. I think the main harm is that it makes the process, the life of being a parent, anxious and difficult and tense and unhappy in all sorts of ways that are unnecessary. And I think it makes it that way for parents and it makes it that way for children. Now, the question about how any kind of behavior on the part of parents influences children in the long run is very, very complicated. So, you know, another piece of this evolutionary picture is that every individual child has their own characteristics. Every parent does. There's this complicated interaction between the parents' distinctive characteristics in the child's, so that actually trying to say, well, if you do this, then your child is going to come out like that in the long run, that's pretty much of a mugs game, and I don't think we have very much evidence for that. So I wouldn't want to say, oh, well, if you're a carpenter, then your children are going to come out to have some terrible, crazy feature. Children come out in all sorts of unexpected ways. That's the whole point. It's not just that the carpentry model is making parents and kids stressed. There's something Allison has noticed about today's adolescents. You know, in some ways, they're doing much better. They're achieving more they're less likely to take risks, they are less likely to get pregnant or to use drugs. But that goes with a kind of anxiety, high levels of anxiety, high levels of of fear. And I think, you know, that is kind of what you would predict from the carpentry story. So the carpentry story is one where you're so concerned that the child come out that you're not giving the child the freedom to take risks and explore and and be autonomous. And it's not risk-taking unless there's some chance that it could really go wrong. And I think that's another aspect of the current parenting culture that's that's problematic. We're so concerned about how these children are going to turn out that we're unwilling to give them the autonomy that they need to be able to take risks and go out and explore the world. So the irony is to get to good outcomes, sometimes you do better by not trying specifically to get to those outcomes and instead not worrying about outcomes at all. And I think that's one of the real deep messages of the science that I'm talking about in the book. You're the answer, son. (laughs) I hope you found that interesting and food for thought. There are many ways to apply that as a counterpoint and differ on some of the applications discussed today. And there are fun ways to frame that from different sides, but not now. Um, It's also very easy to fall into a morass of semantic parsing, especially once you include the vice and virtue of pride or, or concepts of glory, for example. And I feel like I always make this disclaimer, but it bears repeating that if your application or illustration of a principle is absurd, you've probably missed the forest for the trees. Feeling pride in your good work and receiving glory for achievement is a good thing. It would be really strange if you didn't like following your own values, or if society never acknowledged when your values align. Where it becomes an issue is where you value that feeling or image over the work or 
achievement itself when it's more important to you than what you set out to do in the first place. <laughs> well, so much for not parsing semantics. Look, I love this stuff. To me, nothing is as satisfying as a truly comprehensive list of elements that robustly define an abstract concept. But as much as I employ that technique, I want to make it clear that that's not my goal. I use it as a tool to foster discussion and analysis, not to establish definitive breakdowns of these concepts. I don't have the hubris to believe that I can sum up an eternal concept like, say, trust in a single episode. But I I can explore at least a few facets and glean some insights from those. And when you turn these things over in your mind, don't be surprised if you find different opposing or alternative facets for viewing and analysis. For example, despite my rhetoric and semantics, maybe insecurity isn't all that bad. It sometimes serves as necessary pain that we need to change. If you're willfully lazy, ignorant, and mean, you will feel bad about yourself and you should change. And this episode is a reminder that you can, if you are sincere, proceed in good faith, and persevere. And even this can be unpacked in a million ways. I'm terrified of it being taken that all it takes is effort and will to succeed. But anyways, the universality of insecurity makes it a point of connection for everyone. Unless they're deluded, every successful person you know has struggled, has failed, has made mistakes, and has had to grow, has had to change, and has been humbled, or has had insecurities at times. If you look at our trinity of actors, Henry, Gal, and Ben have all questioned in their careers, acting, and roles. And in hindsight, we doubt that they ever should have had doubts. But the key is not to never have them or never be insecure or never fail. It's not to stay there. Become Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman. Don't give up. Keep going up that mountain. Okay. <laughs> Finally, a song from parent to child. You're the answer, son. I know there's a light that glows by the front door Don't forget the keys under the map But childhood stars should always stay humble and kind Go to church cause your mama says to Visit grandpa every chance that you Waste time, always stay humble and kind. Hold the door, say please, say thank you. Don't steal, don't cheat, and don't lie. I know you got mountains to climb. Someone sleeping with someone you love. 
seen a man in order to make the world a better place take a look at himself and make a change who superman you're the answer son <laughs> 